So it's a privilege to be here um, in, in front of you this morning and uh, putting a message together. I have a deep appreciation for pastors who do this um, weekly, time and time again. And uh, it's not easy to be a pastor. And uh, such was the case of a, a young pastor who had uh, went out on a social call to one of the elder, elderly ladies of the, of the congregation. And uh, he was invited for coffee, and as he sat down with her, uh, there was a plate of cookies and a bowl of peanuts sitting on the table. And uh, through the course of their conversation, he had helped himself to a cookie and uh, kind of gravitated to the peanuts. And uh, he really liked these peanuts, and subconsciously, he almost ate the whole bowl. And uh, it was towards the end, as he was leaving, he just he was starting to feel kind of bad about that. And so he, uh, he apologized to her and said, you know, I'm sorry that I ate almost all your peanuts there. And... Uh, the elderly woman said, she said, uh, it's okay, because of my dentures, I, I can't eat peanuts. So you can go ahead and eat the rest of those, because I've already sucked the chocolate off of them. <laughs> you, huh? Maybe some important information just a little bit too late, you know? And so, lest this congregation be accused of that, we have... And what I mean by that, accused of information, uh, important information too late, you know, the truth of the gospel, this congregation has started the story. And uh, the goal of that whole thing, of this whole thing, is that so that maybe at some point everybody can say, I really kind of, I do, I understand the story of the Bible. Because the Bible can be, can be overwhelming. It's an, it's an old, ancient book. You know, there's 66 books in it, and it's, in, it's not in chronological order if you try to read it that way. And it can be very overwhelming with some of the, the names of the people in there, like Jehoshaphat, Zerubbabel, and uh, some of the animal sacrifices and things that went through that. Uh, but Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word is living and active. So it's not a dry history book, but it's, very, it's a living word of God. And it can have relevance for us even today. So perhaps in times as you're reading, you will find that, uh, that you can see yourself in the life of Israel. So as we transition today into the story, it's our last episode of the Old Testament. And the stage is set for the New Testament. And we take a glimpse of how God directs even our every event in the lower story of his nation to accomplish his purpose of getting his people back to him, which we find later on is fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. And so today we hear the last words of the prophets before there's 400 years of silence. As God returns his people to the promised land, it becomes crystal clear that aligning our lives to his plan brings a joy like nothing else. So let's just recap a little bit of the history and, and put the, us into setting before we take off into this book of Nehemiah. So this takes place about 500 years before the time of Christ, and God's people have lived in Israel for centuries, okay? They've, uh, uh, centuries before, and uh, as Laurie read our scripture, uh, Nehemiah's prayer there was kind of a synopsis of Israel. It, it kind of in short, God was saying that simply, if you obey me, you'll live in the land for a long time. However, if you disobey me, you'll be carried off into captivity. And that's exactly what has happened. The Babylonians came and they conquered God's people and took the leading, the leading citizens, didn't take them all, they took the leading ones and carried them away a thousand miles. But that captivity was coming to an end now. 
So at the time of Nehemiah, in his story, it's the 20th reign of King Artaxerxes, which means that Persia is now in control, and they have replaced Babylon. Okay, just hang in there with me. I know history can get a little bit, let's just get through this. All right, but we have to set the stage for this. And so the Persians are ruling just a little bit differently because their whole idea is to to let the people resettle back into their land. And as long as they paid their taxes and supported the Persian empire, things were good. So this is what has happened. So several years before Nehemiah's day, some of the people were given permission to return to Israel. They were sending them back to rebuild a broken-down temple and a broken-down city. But that attempts to rebuild the protective wall around the city were met with, with uh, opposition and resistance, and it, it never was rebuilt. And so as a result, the people lived in the capital city, but the city was in... Very few people lived in the capital city, and the city was in ruins. So as we start the book of Nehemiah, we see God is about to instigate another movement back to the promised land. And we're about to see a nation go from being complacent to returning back to God. In other words, we're about to see revival take place among God's people again. So Nehemiah, what do we know about him? Well, he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and so he was a very trusted official to be in that position. So what was a cupbearer? He actually delivered and tasted the wine that the king was to consume. And he did that for for several reasons, to make sure the wine was good, but also to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So it was kind of a job that you you wanted to make sure you knew who was making the wine and where things were coming from. Um, It was a pretty cushy job for what he had right there with the king. And uh, having uh, left well enough alone, he could have been, he would have been just fine. But this is where things start to change. And we pick it up here as they do change dramatically for Nehemiah. Because his brother comes back from Judah. He had been there to visit. And he comes with this report. And he said that they had rebuilt the temple, but the rest of the city, Jerusalem, was in complete ruins. The wall was never built and attempts produced nothing. The people had become complacent with an attitude of, well, that's just the way it is. You know, though he had never seen Jerusalem himself, as his brother spoke about it, he could see in his mind the desolation and the destruction of the city and the wall. He could see that. You know, we don't think much of a wall, you know, around a city today, but at that time it was, it was very vital to the security of the city. And Nehemiah's response to hearing that story from his brother was this. He said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He began with prayer. He prayed for himself and he prayed for his nation. And he even confessed the sins of his forefathers who had brought destruction to Jerusalem. In fact, he said he prayed day and night. The burden he had for his city was very clear, and he knew that even though the rebuilding of the walls was a physical project, at the end of the day, it was only God who could enable them to complete this task. He was a desperate man seeking the Lord. There's something that stirred in him. There's something that moved him to heed that call to move to rebuild. He had to do something. 
And so he asked the king in chapter 2, verse 5, he said, If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried that I can rebuild it. He had to do something. You know, in the book of James, the first chapter, verse 22, it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. He had plainly heard the voice of God, and he was inspired to do something. You know, when I think of that, that destruction of what he must have visualized, I see some similarities at times, because I think we face some similar desperation and desperate times. I think that there are some parallels with Israel and who we are as a nation. See, when the prophet Nehemiah surveyed Jerusalem, he saw the ruins of a city destroyed by the Babylonians. And just as Jerusalem was in physical ruins, it would seem that our country continues on a path of spiritual ruin. Judah needs some serious rebuilding. And I believe America needs some serious rebuilding. And little did Nehemiah know that he was on the cusp of a revival. God had been putting things in place for some time now. So could it be, could it be that we here in this country are on the edge of a revival? You know, it's, it's important to note that, you know, many Christians have been praying for revival for years in this country. We want God to revive his church. In fact, Things are so desperate that apart from widespread turning to God, we, we're not going to reverse the trends in American culture. But I fear that we want revival, but we're really willing, unwilling to do ourselves, to do it ourselves. We just want it to happen. See, revival is marked with repentance and prayer. And revivals start with God's people. That's you and me. Revival starts with his people, and then it moves out laterally. How bad do we want revival? Or are we a bit complacent as Israel was, and we just kind of wander around the ruins with the attitude, well, it is what it is. You know, America was founded on Christian values, and we considered ourselves a Christian nation, but I don't think we can say that anymore. I think America is ripe for a revival. Our enemy has overplayed his hand. I think there's desperation and there's confusion. You know, maybe, uh, maybe some of you are, are ones that have cried out, God, just send a revival. Please, Lord. Well, I got good news. Who likes good news? Who likes good news? Yeah, yeah, good news. There's good news because there is revival taking place. If you haven't heard... Revival broke out down in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, in Asbury uh, University on a Wednesday night, February 8th, actually, on a Wednesday night chapel. Uh, some of the kids decided to stay back. And it began a repentance that hasn't stopped. It has continued to move across the country. Now, maybe you haven't heard too much about it because, you know, secular media isn't going to pick it up on it. 
I know Fox has picked up on a little bit, uh, NBC has picked up on a little bit, but for the most part, you're not going to hear a lot of it. You kind of got to go looking for it. But it's happening. The Gen Zers are repenting before God. You know, it, uh, it reminds me of back in, uh, well, the early, or the latter part of the 70s. I was talking to my wife, Leanne, and I, and uh, we are part of that, kind of the tail end of the charismatic movement that took place in the 60s and continued on into the latter part of the 70s. Um, there was, I'd say that we were kind of that tail end of it. Uh, we were kind of the outcome, or not, maybe outcome's not the right word, but a harvest. We were part of the harvest. As God had dealt with his people, and then it moved out laterally. And we were on the tail end of that. We had seen some things, some moves of God in places that we had been. And, you know, that's been 40 plus years. And uh, this excites me to hear things like this because it just, God, do it again. Do it again. We so need it. But the question then is, are we willing to pay the price? Because it starts with you and I. You know, Nehemiah requested to the king, the request he made was granted, and he returned to rebuild. It was a huge project undertaken by Nehemiah. As he surveyed the walls in the, in the cover of night, and he knew that he couldn't do it alone, and so he enlisted people, 42,000 people. And as you read the account, you can see that he understood the importance of family because he commissioned families to build the walls and the gates. Whole families were included. And there's a long list of families, and we, we were trying to pronounce them in, in uh, adult Sunday school, and it's like, wow. Uh, but Nehemiah knew this. He, he knew that the families had to have a sense of ownership. In fact, each family built his own part of the wall, and they were essentially saying, if the enemy comes in, I don't want him coming in on my wall. Uh-uh, not on my watch. And all the families, they bought into that. So, you know, it's kind of like Murphy's and Schmidt's. Okay, you got this part of the wall over here. Anderson's, yeah, and Yos, I want you to take this one. Smith's and Horman's, this is your section. Tassie, find somebody to work with, you know? <laughs> right? Whoever could work with you, great. That's your section of the wall. I think, yeah, Nehemiah had some humor in all that. But, and, you know, and he said, you got 52 days, go. And they did. They completed that task in 52 days. And even Judah's enemies proclaimed that God definitely had a hand in that. You know, if America is going to be spiritual or rebuilt, we can't wait for it to happen from the top down. It's not going to happen. It's going to have to be built from the bottom up, so to speak. We need to rebuild our families. So, Because how, how many of you think the family is under attack? It's deteriorating that it once used to be, that solid foundation. And our children... Our children are under attack. They're being indoctrinated with all kinds of garbage. You know, I really feel for your parents that are raising kids at this point in time. I hear what my grandkids have to deal with, and it just, just breaks my heart. The kids shouldn't have to make those kind of decisions and deal with those types of problems. 
And so parents, we, we need to train up our kids spiritually in ways that we used to take for granted. We can't expect the church to do it anymore. We got to be involved, parents. You know, men, we need to step up our game. You know, Eve ate the apple, but when God came looking for him in the garden, you know who he asked for? He asked for the man. He knew, he knew Eve ate the apple, but he asked for the man. You know why? Because Eve was under the spiritual authority of Adam. See, men, we have this God-given authority and this responsibility, and we need to take it seriously. Men, we've left the gates open. We've let our guards down. We've let the enemy in. And if we're going to take this nation back, we need to take back our families. If you want revival, there's a price. See, when God restores something, when God brings revival, expect the enemy to make an attempt to deter the process. Because we saw that Nehemiah stood fast, though. He said he wasn't distracted by opposition. And from the beginning of his obedience, Nehemiah faced ridicule from Sanballat and Tobiah and all his sympathizers. There was lies spoken about him, and, and, and they opposed the fact that he was rebuilding the wall. But Nehemiah didn't back down. He took note of his enemies. Yes, he did. But the opposition didn't deter him, and neither should we. We should expect opposition because we're in a war. We're in a war for our families. We're in a war for our children. We're in a war for this church. We're in a war for this nation. And the enemy doesn't like it. Our man, he doesn't like you. He doesn't like the fact that you're here today because he doesn't like unity. And he seeks division and discord. So let's not be naive to believe that uh, we won't face opposition as we pursue the things of God. Well, you know, some would argue that, uh, well, America's not that bad. Come on. You know, we can't make comparisons about Nehemiah and the Old Testament. Come on, that's, that's, the, old, that's the old law. We're not under the old law. We're under the, we're under the new law. We're under grace, aren't we? Right? We're under grace. You know, it saddens me. to think of churches that I knew that used to be thriving beacons of truth and are now are just mere shells of what they used to be. They've bought into that all-inclusive, let's all just get together. Let's just accept everybody as we are. So you know we're all under grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German Lutheran pastor. And he joined the underground, and he was convinced that it was his Christian duty to work for the defeat of Hitler during World War II. Bonhoeffer was only 39 years old when he was executed as part of the Flossenburg martyrs. But not before he had made the huge contribution to Christian thought. In his book, it's a classic book. If you ever get a hold of it, if you've read it, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about grace. And he talks about a cheap grace. He says this, and I quote, 
The world finds a cheap covering for its sin. No contrition is required, and still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. It's cheap grace. It's preaching of forgiveness without required repentance. It's grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. And it's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But on the other hand, he says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought after again and again. The gift which must be asked for. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. And above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. See, church, we can't hide under cheap grace. We know the truth. And the truth will set us free. Under ridicule and opposition, Nehemiah remained strong and the wall was built and dedicated. And the desire to hear God's word read and preached actually came from the people who were a part of that. And it says that all the people came together in the square before the water gate and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And he read it aloud from daybreak to noon. And in the presence of all who could understand, all the people listened attently to the book of the law. As they listened, it caused them to weep. Because now, now they understood what was being read. Ezra and all the people knew that unless the community was founded on the word of God, they would fall back into that same pattern that led them away from God in the past. Ezra had called them back to lives based on the word of God. So the exiled people learned in that word about the Feast of Tabernacles, something that they had not celebrated since the days of Joshua. It was a seven-day festival, and it resulted in a celebration of joy like Israel had never experienced before. Because you see, the word of God always brings spiritual revival and reformation. When God's people display a hunger and a thirst for his truth with heartfelt repentance, God uses it to accomplish his purpose of bringing his people back to joy. And you know that joy comes. That joy comes as people recognize that God's word calls us to return from our wicked ways and that he would redeem the time that was lost and restore our relationship with him. Out of obedience to God is joy. It's joy living in alignment with God. It's a joy of a relationship with him. It's joy unspeakable. So don't miss what God is doing today. In his advancement of, the, of his kingdom on earth and experience his joy. Ooh. 
Well, you know, this concludes our journey through the Old Testament. And as I said before, there's 400 years of silence before we hear any more about the, the arrival of the Messiah. But I encourage you to keep reading the story as we do this together, as we journey through the story together, Lord, it's God's word. So we have seen that God moved a kingdom through circumstances that unfolded over generations of kings and assigned the right leaders and the roles and complemented each other and he's to establish his people back to Jerusalem at just the right time to bring about the rebuilding and the revival of the lives of the people. Yeah, and in the midst of that is when revival broke out. Did you know today God is still raising up his Daniels, his Esthers, his Nehemiahs, his Ezras. God's still doing it. God is still moving. It's the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. You're here in this time and place for a purpose. As believers, we have spiritual gifts, and we have gifts and roles and abilities that complement one another. So consider it, if you will, what God has already accomplished to equip you with certain specific abilities and places at this time that you're available to him. See, at time things may look bleak, but be encouraged. See, the, it's always the darkest before the dawn. There's things going on in the heavenly, in the spiritual realm that we can't see, but things are aligning. Don't miss what God is doing. Be encouraged. Press in, lay hold, and step into what God has laid on your heart and experience the joy of the Lord. Amen. As the worship team uh, comes forward, I'd like to close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth and it is life. And we pray that you would revive your people. Lord, give us a burden for this nation, for this city, and for our families, Lord. A burden, Lord, that only you can change the hearts of men. God, it's all about you. For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you alone are worthy of our adoration and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.